Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome. My name is Mallory Davies, and I am a PhD student in the History Department at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. I am on the traditional territory of the Attawandaran, also known as Neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples. The University of Waterloo is situated on the Haldimand Tract, land that was promised to the Six Nations that includes six miles on each side of the Grand River. I am joined today by Dr. Jason Ellis, Associate Professor of Educational Studies and Historian of Education at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Jason is on the traditional and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Sabletooth nations. Today, we are going to talk about his new book, A Class by Themselves, The Origins of Special Education in Toronto and Beyond. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Mallory. Oh, it's nice to speak with you again. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to um, have this conversation. So diving right in, um, how did you become interested in the history of special education in Canada? So in the first year of my MA in history at York, um, I was researching a course paper and I went to the uh, Centre for Addiction and Mental Health Archives, the old Toronto Psychiatric Hospital Archives, but now called CAMH Archives in Toronto, and it is a fantastic archives. And I um, found some records, or I was, I was shown some records that um, connected special education and eugenics in ways that I had never imagined. And, and, and that was fascinating to me as something I, I had never thought of. And so my MA uh, major research paper at York ended up being on eugenics in Toronto schools in the 1910s and 20s. And, and that's what got me interested in the topic. And then my original plan was to look at the history of special education, um, to look for those sort of odd and interesting connections across the country. But then I found the student records. All right. And so, um, speaking from those records, you explained that you went through 17,000 pupil records. Where did you find them? Uh, what was it like to sort through that many files? And what was one thing that you found in the records that was unexpected? So I, I found them or they were shown to me. Um, I, was, I was at the Toronto District School Board Archives in the record storage. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking to the conservator they had there. His name was David, his name is David Sauerbutz, who's retired now. But, uh, David worked with the records and uh, artifacts and, and the art, making sure it was um, kept uh, properly. Um, and he said to me one day, have you seen these? And, and showed me this huge wooden filing unit and it, it would have covered an entire wall and it was stuffed with student records and they, they dated back to about 1910. And so the 17,000 that I looked at were from three different schools, Hester Howe, Duke of York and, and Coleman. And the school board archivist, Greg McKinnon, gave me permission to use them in my, in my PhD dissertation research. Um, and then that dissertation became the book, A Class by Themselves. And so I'm very grateful to, the, to Greg, um, as well as to the Toronto District School Board for, for giving me permission to use those files and for preserving the, the school board's history. We have a fine archives there, one of the best in the country. Um, 
but it took a long time to sort through that many records. And so mm -hmm. the archives assistant, uh, Marie Passerino, set me up in the reading room um, at the archives and, and I worked there with my old clunky laptop on a database. And it took me most of the summer of 2008 and most of the 2008-2009 school year to go through all the records and, and, mm -hmm. and take notes. Um, you asked what was unexpected. So the really most unexpected thing, other than the actual records themselves, which were just astonishing as a, as a mm -hmm. find that was shown to me, um, the, the most unexpected find were the, the uh, psychologist reports that were appended to many of the records. And usually about half a page typewritten, um, and including some other vital, vital details about the, the kids being um, surveyed. And these were, the reports really breathed life into the records. And I did my best to sort of read them against the grain for what they could tell me about the kids who attended the special education programs. And it turns out there were enough records, not all the records had a report like this, not, not even the majority, but there were enough of them that I could sort of build up a history of the students in those classes. And I think that was hugely important to what I was able to do later with the book. Okay, interesting. And so in your book, you discuss um, how the history of special education is neither completely about malevolent social control, uh, nor about totally benevolent social reform. So how does this history meet at the intersection of those two contradictions? Yeah, I wonder if it even does meet. I mean, those are the two, uh, two of, the, of the threads. Mm -hmm. The sort of funny thing is that, and I've learned this from studying the history of special education for a while now, is that we tend to think of it as like just being one thing, mm -hmm. but really it isn't. It's several different things, many different things happening at once. Um, there are big differences between special education programs and populations today. The difference between um, kids who might be in a, a, a sign language, an ASL sign language class and kids who are in, um, uh, a, a special education withdrawal unit within a school or in a separate school, there are big differences in what those things are. Um, and there were big differences in the past too. So, you know, for many eugenicists in the 1910s, especially special education was plainly a matter of social control and they explained it and justified it in those terms. Um, the people that I looked at in Toronto wanted to build a farm colony for so-called mental defectives. And they thought that special education classes would be the best way to identify those kids right away and sort them and segregate them. Um, they, they didn't beat around the bush. That's what they said they were doing. But there were also social reformers who, who worked in the same area and they believed what they were doing would help children who genuinely had difficulty at school for many different reasons. So these two groups could kind of speak to each other and, and they could even work on separate but connected reforms. Sometimes they spoke past each other um, you know, as, as, as one example from the book, the, the earliest classes for so-called mental defectives in Toronto in the 1910s, um, eugenicists like Helen McMurchie publicized these classes as leading to the type of lifelong segregation that she believed was necessary. Um, but the teachers in the classes didn't necessarily think that. Um, I found quite a bit that one of those teachers had written, her name was Lillian Carruthers, and, and she, she said a lot less about eugenics. She didn't reject it outright. She was knowledgeable about it. Um, she'd even been instructed in it. Um, but, you know, her interest was in helping children who struggled, and she said it as much, and she even clashed with some of the higher-ups in the Toronto school system who wanted only to sort and segregate. And, and she said, no, these kids are worth more than that. And so already from the beginning, you have these competing aims, and I don't think that's gone away. 
Hmm. Interesting. And so how did students shape their own educational experiences when um, education seemed to come from, you know, the top? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. What I, I think, I think it's similar to the competing interests of, of eugenicists and social reformers. Um, special education wasn't one thing. It was different things to different people, including different things to different kids. When I first started studying the topic, I had, um, you know, I, I expected to see children and families resisting special education in the same way they resisted eugenics, because that's what I, I felt, you know, that's where I started with the topic. But the historical actors that I discovered, um, they, they really stubbornly avoided my efforts to lump them all into a single course of action, um, probably one that I found more pleasing. I wanted to see them resisting things, I think, when I started out, but that's not what I found. Um, depending on the learning available in, in the classes at the time and on the child's circumstances and even down to their individual personalities, different kids had different reactions to special education. So some believed it harmed them. And some believed it helped them. And I had to weigh and evaluate all of those reactions. And I really tried my best to listen carefully to people in the past and to include them in whatever their, whatever their experience was, to, to, to take that seriously and include it as part of the, the narrative. Um, that has not always made the book popular with ardent inclusion advocates in the present they want to see historical actors sometimes doing the things that they want to see them doing, but that's not how we write or why we write history, right? We, we don't write mm -hmm. it to indicate a particular point of view in the present. Mm -hmm. We need to capture accurately and fairly people's experiences in the past. And I hope that's what I did. I, I certainly tried to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, and so you had just mentioned, um, about the ongoing discussions of inclusive education as rooted in the past. And so how does your book provide important context to those discussions? Yeah, well, I guess as I've been saying, it presents a more complicated picture, mm -hmm. but I also think a more accurate discussion of what special education and inclusion have been and continue to be. Um, inclusion is not the perfect end of history. Um, the arc of history doesn't point in the direction of inevitable and complete inclusion. I mean, some people might like it to, and I might even be one of those people who'd like it to, but history doesn't work like that. Um, the evidence shows that th this issue is very much an open issue today, just as it was in the past. And so I think the book contributes something about the origins, but it also, it also has that lesson that if special education is contested in the present and, and un, incomplete in the present and inclusion as well, that's because it's always been like that. Mm. We should expect it to be that way. And so that's the, the very last line in my book is, uh, you know, two lines are a class by themselves question mark is still an unsettled issue. And I, I do see it that way. Hopefully that gives people who are working on in this field in the present, some greater sense of, um, where they fit into a history that's incomplete. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so what, what projects are you currently uh, working on after, are you continuing in history special education or are you moving 
um, into similar or different topics. I don't think I'll ever leave it, but I, I, I come back to it a bit later. I need to take a break after an MA and a PhD and a, and a book. Um, but the main project I'm working on right now is a book about suburbs and schools in the post-war period. Mm -hmm. And so the book's about the Toronto suburb of Etobicoke, and I'm interested in the way that suburban housing expansion and, and housing markets even um, built post-war suburban schools. So, I mean, as a start, they paid for them. Mm -hmm. That wealth in property was taxed to, to pay for schools. Um, mm -hmm. But they also structured those schools in, in other ways as well. And by the same token, I'm interested in how schools built suburbs contributing to things like people's investments in their homes. I mean, in the period that I'm looking at the post-war period, this is where you really get for the first time people buying and selling homes based on the local school. That's something mm -hmm. seen extensively in Canada to that time. Mm -hmm. And so my argument there is, is that these school suburb relationships and suburb school relationships structure post-war opportunity and inequality in really significant ways. Mm. And I'm trying to figure out what those ways are, or I'm sort of part of the way through. And then aside from that, I'm, I'm, I'm tinkering with a short monograph on um, the history of educational policy in British Columbia. And that comes out of a graduate course um, in history of educational policy that I teach regularly at UBC. I think that, that you took, in fact. Indeed, I did. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm coming. I, I'm, I always have that sort of simmering on the side. And I, the te teaching is a great way to um, write that sort of a book, a, a helpful overview, because it, 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 it Teaching gets you to explain things. And, and that's what I hope that book will do as well. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And um, just another kind of question I thought of, if um, there are some graduate students listening to this conversation, do you have any um, uh, advice or suggestions for those who are interested in the history of education? Um, People who know me well will know that I always have lots of advice and then I'll tell you exactly what you should do and why I think you should do it. Um, so take this with a grain of salt, but um, I, I think my, my advice is twofold. It's that, that you should come into this field or subfield. It's an excellent place to work. And there are lots of, there's so many topics in, in Canada that that need coverage, not just in special education, but in educational history generally. We don't have um, a case study of a single urban school system. Um, we have surprisingly few sort of book length studies of um, immigrants to Canada and education in the uh, first half of the 20th century. There's Tim Stanley's excellent book, on, on Vancouver, so the contesting white supremacy is a slightly different topic, but um, there's just so much opportunity in the field. And um, for, those of, for those people who are entering the field, you know, I would also encourage them to have their one foot in another field like you do, or in women's studies or in, in, in policy, because the history of education has always been able to speak across disciplinary, um, across disciplines and, 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 and uh, we're really well positioned in a, in a world where that's increasingly important. Great, um, well, thank you. And um, you. Things, to, things to think about in the future. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is fun, thanks for doing this. Yeah, and um, yeah, thank you for your time and, and for this discussion.
thank you for listening to Shusai Podcast. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. S-H-C-Y dot org.